miles. I want to lick it. <laughs> Ice cream. I, I, I start. <laughs> I don't know what you were thinking, but I'm an old lady now. <laughs> Uh, I don't think so. As you said, you could play that card, but that's not what I read from you at all. Not at all. I, I just have to be full disclosure in case you want me to get rid of that, but I started recording and I missed the lead up to the joke, so I only got you saying the punchline. <laughs> but um, <laughs> uh, I, I, had a, I had a question because we were just having uh, a family gathering and um, it was our cousin's birthday my my second cousin her cousin and we had those christmas crackers oh yes and that's a good australian tradition it, it, okay wait you i didn't know you were australian yeah okay cool um because she's lived there for 50 years now yeah yeah oh, wow we're in australia sydney oh cool okay but so in inside inside the poppers there were a bunch of questions you know like the yeah. there was a gimmick yeah. yeah and one of the questions was uh, what's what's something that's changed for you over the last three years? I've had a major change. Hmm. I discovered you don't have to take no personally. Hmm. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good. That's one. major. That's huge. I'm. I I just journaled today something along the lines of like, because I'm 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 working on songwriting, and if anybody's listening. They'll think I'm obsessed with it because it's all I can relate anything back to. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it, it it crushes me when I'm working on a song because I just started and I'll make something and it won't sound right. And I've managed to make something sound right. So every time I do that, I look at myself and I say, oh, I failed to make a good song. Instead of I've put in more hours towards mastering this process of of songwriting. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that yeah. is kind of a nice way to relate to it. Yeah. I use the word in the past. Hmm. In the past, mm, I really didn't think much of myself. Hmm. And now I'm moving forward. I love Octavia Butler. Everything you touch, you change. Everything you change, changes you. Hmm. All is change. God is change. Hmm. And so a follow-up, uh, which is maybe a version of the same question, but um, after having that experience, I listened to something by Ram Dass, mm. and he mm. was saying, I'm hoping I'm quoting the right person. I think it was Ram Dass. Mm. But he was saying, um, you are not who you, who you think you are. And I, I thought that that was an interesting question for maybe the both of you. When is a time when you realize that you were wrong about who you thought you were or when life told mm. you something different? Mm. Mm. That's a really, really good question. I, I, I know that for me, when I realized that my, a lot of my life was performative, it was the way culture told me a woman was supposed to behave, <laughs> the way uh, people told me an actor was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. When I realized that and that it didn't actually fit the soul, the person in this body, uh, that's when I started to lose um, lose connection with identities that are told to me by other institutions mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, the people mm-hmm. people with other needs mm-hmm. of, for me 
that's part of my don't take it personally. I have then to recognize that it's there. It's coming from them. And they're, what they're saying may not be what I'm hearing. So by not taking it personally, I'm able to deal with it more easily. And sometimes, yeah, sometimes it feels a lot better. I, 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 I'm lost in that because I start to go off. And sometimes, hmm. Hmm. and sometimes I discover me. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I like what I see. Mm. Yeah. Those are the best moments. We're talking to Andra Kindred. And this is a, a soul that was in the middle of everything in the 60s. Absolutely everything. And uh, you gave me the honor of being able to read your book. And uh, I want to talk about that. Okay. Uh, and also... I want to talk about what I what I saw that I didn't see before is that it's an excerpt from your full autobiography, mm-hmm. Code Switching. Mm-hmm. And I love that phrase when I think of what your life had to have been. But let's back it up. <laughs> let's back it all the way up. This book, uh, you you started off by talking about your family, and you had extraordinary great-grandparents. Australia, when we start, we give acknowledgement to the people, the ancestors, people who've come before. And so, because I'm there, I picked that up, and I started to give respect to my aunt, who was probably one of the most successful, unknown black women songwriters ever. Mm. Now, tell us some songs that she wrote. I wish wow. we could have looked them up. For Elvis and Presley, it was Let's Have a Party. What? Oh, Wait, okay, so we've heard these. For Nina Simone, it was The Other Woman. No. Um, she did Patty Page. In the olden days when there was the Lucky Strike hit parade, we used to run home to see what her song was, I Went to Your Wedding, was going to be on that week. She was on the pop charts at the same time she was on the rhythm and blues charts. And, and Wow. Yeah. That's, ex- that's extraordinary. How incredible. And what was her story? Was it a struggle for her when, as a black woman? On her birth, on, on her wedding night, she was pregnant and home alone because her husband was out with his girlfriend. Oh. Mm, that wasn't my story to tell, but I just told it. <laughs> yeah. And do you think that's where the, the creative juices just had to come out somewhere? I think that's the creative juices were already out there. She she was always had a pencil in her hand, was writing something, a poem, an article or something. But I think that's where she got tough enough to not need an agent. She got tough enough to negotiate and she got tough enough to tell people like Johnny Otis and uh, and, and, and the black publishing recording companies, no, you won't. Don't you, you better take your name off my song and give me my credit and my money. Now, how did she get there? How did she get to that place to do that? That's Mm. extraordinary courage. Mm. But your family, though. Well, my family after slavery, my grandmother's grandmother, Winnie, was much loved by her husband. In those days, uh, 
women, black women who were slaves were allowed to have sex with guys, but they couldn't marry them. That wasn't allowed. Just make more babies. And with the three children that she had, the color of their skin lets you know that they were put upon her by her owners. But then she met this man. He was a slave. He was evidently so special that we found him in a will where he was being gifted to someone upon the owner's death. He was that valued. Mm -hmm. So when Jim Shankel had his wife taken away from her, had her shipped off to Texas, long way from Mississippi, he didn't take it kindly. And when he got to the Mississippi River as a runaway slave, he couldn't catch a ferries, so he swam across. And there were a few more rivers, but he made it across. But so he's a runaway slave yeah. looking for this woman he loves. Yes. And and, and, and the, the risk, the risk, yeah. the fear that must have... I mean, if they caught him, uh, the slave captures, who were the, the, what do you call it, the forerunners of our police today, um, they would be able to sell him to somebody else and make a profit, return him to the home. He might have his feet chopped off as, mm. a, as an example, like, don't do this, because look what happens to you, you lose your feet. All of that could have happened to him. But luckily, the plantation she was on was a minister who didn't believe in slavery, but his wife came from slave background so she wanted her slaves so she was gifted them but he didn't believe it and she went to him and she didn't have any kids with his last name so I don't think he was diddling around and confessed that Jim was there and so they negotiated for Jim to be bought by that owner and Jim happily went back into slavery to be with the woman he loved And then when the slaves, well, actually not when the slaves were freed, two years after June when Texas... after they got a couple of extra crops out of the slaves for free. Right. Then they're freed. How did he accumulate enough money to buy his own land? Well, he was in business with one of his son-in-laws. The son-in-law looked white. He could go out and work and earn and Jim, like I said, he was valued. He was in that will, so he had skills. He probably made some money on the side. Hmm. And they did one of those family things. All I could find out from Wikipedia was that they had money, and they bought land, and that became a Texas freedom colony, and they welcomed people who were freed, and not all the slaves were freed, to come and the sawmill would build, give them wood for their house. The gristmill would grind their corn, and and they did fine. And they built a school. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's. Do you now? I came from an extraordinary family. Tell me about it, and please. It, it, they they were my grandmother um, went to the Paris Opera to learn to do ballet. And you weren't supposed to be married, but she uh, she and she she learned ballet and came home and taught her eleven children. <laughs> she had eleven children by thirty-five. Good so, and then they became uh, 
headliners on the vaudeville circuits at the time. <gasps> wow. Performed for um, President Coolidge, did all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, so they were extraordinary, uh, almost mythical creatures, mm-hmm. a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. for me, that was a little bit daunting. Oh, it could be. I felt there was like a pressure to, and I know you've talked about feeling a pressure of what the family has done and sure. how do I fit into that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you have when you have all of these incredible uh, creators and performers in your mm-hmm. in your lineage, sometimes I, I certainly carry that with me on occasion. You know, I mean, I, it, sometimes it's inspiring in how like I I, I you know it's all kind of. Uh, boiled down to a simple formula and and these people are human to me and I know them as my family so mm-hmm. therefore why can't I do that as well you know but but there's there's a, there's a daunting element where there's a a high bar a high standard of of success have you felt that you're taking it personally huh? I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still ruminating on that you know I need that right now Andy did you feel any of that with your family? No. Jessie Mae was Jessie Mae. She wrote songs and was pretty cool. She, well, what I loved about her was she could, with, she was a single mom, she could make great dishes out of crap pieces of food. Mm. We, we, I never saw a strip of bacon. She would buy the little bits that were chipped off the end of the bacon because they were cheap. And she made that into something wonderful. She took all the crap that was in her life and made it all special. And you, you, you were thrilled to be in the room with her. You were thrilled to be with her. That's an artist. Yes. That is an artist. And I, how did... I, I'm so sorry. I'm still dreaming of chip bacon, but you can't buy it because that's the part they throw away now. <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did Australia end up uh, becoming part of your family history? Cecily, um, not Cecily Tyson, um, what's her name? Um... Mm-hmm. Leslie Uggams ran into her at a party, and I'd never met her, so I started chatting because we knew the same people. Because in Hollywood back in those days, if you were black and you knew one person, you knew everybody. Mm. So, and she said to me, I said, I'm going off to Hong Kong with my husband. He's going to be teaching at the university there. And she said, don't go to Australia. So that's what happened. Mm. I ended up sitting on a beach in Bali, and a guy came along with a mango and said, would you like a mango? I said, yes. Next thing I knew, I lived in Australia. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. What happened to the husband with the teaching job? I think the guy, the guy wasn't a romantic. The, the mango guy wasn't romantic. In, no, it sounds like he was. The mango guy was very romantic. Very oh, the mango romantic. guy was romantic. Young okay. German and didn't speak much English, that, which was great. That's very romantic. <laughs> that was very romantic. Oh, yeah. So wait a minute. So, no, the husband, it was, my, it was an interracial marriage. And at, that was a stage when there weren't a lot. I mean, Tyne Daly and George Stanford Brown had married, and they were in, news, in articles of, you know, Look at this, a black man and a white woman. And with me, it was, oh, look at this, a black woman and a white guy. Yeah. And I married him two weeks after I went out with him. Oh, that could have something to do with the young German on the beach with the mango. So by that time, I had left him in Hong Kong teaching with this student. And I'd gone off the hippie trail, and I, I ended up in Bali. Wow. How did that experience, do you feel... 
like shaped you as a person? Oh, it was wonderful. The confidence, the being able to walk into another country and the awareness of their culture, of being respectful for who they are and how they are mm-hmm. and living with them and learning a little bit. I'd been terrified of languages. I wouldn't go to France because I couldn't speak French and I was ashamed and embarrassed, so I would never go there. But in Bali, I started learning a word and then I found that another word that added range to that and then another word added more to that and pretty soon I was doing my little bits. It wasn't much, but the people were smiling at me and glad that I had tried. So that was my Oh, that also part. must have been a really scary uh, step to take. Am I correct in assuming that? Like, the, even the notion of ending up there after so much uh, disarray, perhaps, yeah. could be, like, you know, a brave... I didn't know where I was going. And by that time, I had a $10,000 U.S. US dollar cashier's check in my, in my shoe. Hmm. And I thought, oh, and an American Express card. It was like, screw you. I can do anything I want. <laughs> I learned about the rich white ladies. Rich white ladies are able to create things. They're mythic beings that have powers that we didn't have. And I heard about them in the beauty salon with my mother. Like a rich white lady gave it to her, taught it, bought it, sold it, did it, whatever. And by the time I was in Bali on my way around, I was a rich white lady. <laughs> Let's go back to your mother because I watched... Uh, TED Talk you gave in Sydney, um, talking about the differences between you and your mother with hair. Uh-huh. And the, the fact uh, uh, black women's hair is so important. It's such an expression of yeah. way more than, than just uh, how you are uh, fixing yourself. And we're still fighting that battle today. Yes. I'm still seeing some kid in the school who gets treated badly because of their hairstyle. Yes. Yeah. But tell me about your mother. What was the, what were the generational differences? In the 60s, how old were you? I was born in 39. So in the 60s, I hit 20. So you were 20 years old. 21. And- And this is all blowing up. It's all happening. Yeah. And who's your mother? She's a a business owner. My mother is not just a business owner. She went to work for Jean Chacove. Jean Chacove was the role model for, what's the movie? Uh, Oh, I love that I forget things. No, I don't love it. I get really frustrated. Um, He owned the candy store. He had the the oh, hairdressing wow. salon in there, and the film uh, with what's his name about a, a, a hairdresser Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty. The film was a really shampoo. Shampoo. It was, was about, about him. It was about him. <gasps> and so she had gone to work with him because she had come up to L.A. and her relationship didn't work out. She had to go back to work, so she became a shampoo girl at his salon, and she had those aspirations. She was the where I learned about, you know, you know, the rich white lady. And I do make that a joke sometimes. And I forgive me. I, people get such shit crapped on them. And I don't do anything to help. I do it too. But it was my dream. I thought I just thought these were really powerful people. And when she came back from Jean Chico, she knew new people, uh, actors, uh, wives of actors and directors. And she was telling me all these stories about these people and what they had achieved. 
And from that, she decided that her hair salon would be modeled on them. So she didn't go in a storefront where most of the black women had their hair salons. She went into an office building with a receptionist in front. I see. Yeah, and so she did Mrs. Nat King Cole. Wow. And Mrs. Louis Armstrong. Right up there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So she was highly successful, and she was aspiring, and she had decided this business model. And here's this 20-year-old girl. (laughs) Oh, I wasn't allowed to come into the hair salon. I'd have to meet her out the back. Because you, you... you I was wearing fro? my hair nappy. Yeah. And you, Andre, how could you do this to me? You're wrecking my business. My customers see you walking with your hair all nappy. And Dr. King called me last week, and he said he'd seen you in New York when you were wearing your hair nappy there, too. Andre, how could you do this? Now, wait a minute. Let's just back up and talk about Dr. Martin Luther King having an opinion of your hair to your mother. That's, that's pretty extraordinary. That, okay. that that relationship. Were to, you speaking about uh, Martin Luther in in that sense in New York and and he? Well, I I had seen him in New York and my friend Gwen. No, it's that Martin Luther King she's talking with, about. She, my friend Gwen um, had who had introduced me to him in, in L.A. when I, you know, and so he had called Gwen and told Gwen and Gwen called my mother. So I was really pissed off at him about that. <laughs> you didn't have to do that. I think he was pissed off at me because I, I got to him in a press conference and I said, why did you get out of jail? Why did you stay in jail? Ah. And I didn't know why then, but it was, it was Hoover who was blackmailing him to get him out of jail because he was gaining too many people on his side in jail. And Hoover said, if you don't get out of jail, I'm going to tell your wife what you've been doing. And why did you at that time believe that he shouldn't be, or he should be in jail? He shouldn't have left? Because we had the press on our side with him in jail. Mm. With him out of jail, he was just another black guy. But in jail, the images of what was going on and the fact that he was in prison for protesting, that was more powerful for us. And you know what happens. It doesn't lead if you're not doing something. Mm. So above the fold, if we want, I wanted to keep us above the fold. Hmm. Yeah. So I heard you say that he was very funny. Yeah. Was he? Yeah. He's funny like um a wit or funny like telling jokes. He he told jokes very well, but he had a humorous take on a lot of things. And I, for example, I, I was on the phone with him and I'd been back in the olden days, we had telephone operators. Oh yeah. You couldn't direct dial. So in order to place a person-to-person call, because you didn't want to just ring up and then have to pay for it if they weren't there, so we had person-to-person. And I was going from operator to operator to operator, and by the time I got to Martin, I had been talking to these women for so long, I said, Martin, how you like my southern accent? And he said, Andy, you sound like a cracker. (laughs) (laughs) Can you remember any of his jokes? Uh, they're not for... Oh, not for mixed company. Not for mixed... Well, mixed company, yes, but only after several more drinks and uh, everybody's over 21. But actually, when I think <laughs> of mixed company, what does that mean? <clears throat> Women can't hear these jokes? I mean, that when I think of the phrase, it's kind of an antiquated phrase. It Please. Is. Yeah, and I yeah. was using it just in the uh, the sense of adults only. Yeah. 
Adults only. Yeah. I totally yeah. get it. I can cover my ears. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and he wondered why I was blushing. And But Malcolm X isn't the only powerful leader that you knew at the time. You also... Wait, Martin, Martin Luther... Martin Luther King, but also Malcolm X. This is a lot for me to even take in because these are huge mythical yes, individuals. Yes, that, that's, that's and, what and I'm saying. For uh, who, who changed uh, the country and... and I think um, the other day Mark Altman said to me, Andy, you're just like Forrest Gump. <laughs> and I said, that's exactly what my partner says when he said my butt's bigger. <laughs> <laughs> but we know your partner really, really loves you. So that's an affectionate, uh, that, that's with huge affection. Uh, now, there was a man who was very influential. It seemed like he was a mentor for your political activism, and it's the man who actually came up with Kwanzaa. Malana Karinga. Yes. Yes. And, and he actually, uh, it seems, separated from Malcolm X. He had different ideas than he did. I don't know if he had different ideas. They just went different direction. Malana's an academic. He's yes. got, I think, two or three doctorates now. He's in Long Beach. Yeah. Did you see him? Uh, I, While you're here? I got an email from him the other day. Oh. So we're, we're talking about catching up. He's, Good. He's, he's doing everything on 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 um, online. So he's running back and forth. And if we don't get a chance to get per, up close, uh, we can do that instead. Nice. Well, a, a Zoom I'm meeting. I'm so delighted that after all these years, we're still friends. I'm after, My friend who lives here, you, you might know her, Rosalind Heller. No, I don't. Roz was the first woman in an executive position at a, tu at a studio. Really? Yeah. And so Roz and I met uh, with Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland when they had the EIPJ, the Entertainment Industry for Peace and Justice. So we were hanging out with them, and that's where she and I met. And we became friends then, and we're still friends. And, and Roz was the first woman in Hollywood to be an exec at a studio. So you've you've been around so much change, so much huge, uh, yeah. you know, the, the history. Truly, yeah. Uh, is it okay to ask you what your pulse is on today? Do you have any thoughts on? Well, my on blood where pressure is at? pretty high. <laughs> <laughs> my pulse is pretty erratic. Uh, I really am painfully aware that one of the Star Trek episodes back in the olden days, um, let this be your last battlefield where people were black on one side and white on the other, mm -hmm. and white on one side and black on the other, and their planet was destroyed because of their inability to get together to, to find some peace. Um, I, I look at America and I think, oh, oh, no. oh, please. We still need that message? I'm scared. I worry. I don't want that to happen here. What I did after Star Trek, after after I got a chance to get that out of my system, that, that desire to make a film, and I succeeded, I, I, I did a good job. And A then, good job? I'm, I think it won... Uh, yeah. It won uh, uh, the documentary award at the Sydney yeah. Film Festival. And, and it, it hit Paris tell us, and London and New York. Congratulations. Tell us, but, tell us but, 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 about this film. Tell us about this documentary. It was um, on the aboriginals who had a six-week experience 
theater. Right. Yeah, you would know about that. Yeah. Don't you wish everyone could have that experience? Oh, yeah. It's shifting. So um, tell us about that. What was that like for you? I just got lucky that I was there at the right time with the right skill set. I hadn't been able to do it in Hollywood. I hadn't been able to do it anywhere in, in America. But there they went, oh, you're African-American. Can I touch your hair? Um, plus that, it was like they knew that since I was African-American, I could sing, I could dance, and I could play basketball. <laughs> so they said, what else do you want to do? And I okay. said, I want to make a film right. about these people. Because as usual, I ended up with the people, the disruptors. Mm. My best friend was known as the Australian Angela Davis. Yeah, Roberta Sykes. Oh, she was something else. And so I was with people who wanted things to change. And so that's what I did. I wanted to make a, a document of the time. Yeah. I wanted to make something that they could watch, watch and see themselves in positive ways and laugh and enjoy it. I wanted something that they could celebrate themselves, and so that's what I made. Well, especially and in, I'm sorry. This was the first time a film had been made about Aboriginal people by a person of color. Almost. Almost? There was an Aboriginal man who made a film before me, but everything else, all the documentaries, other documentaries were were, were not. They were all white. And, and Okay, the, uh, 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 a woman of color. Yeah. First, okay. Absolutely. I, I got Absolutely it. There. I got it. <laughs> Sorry, Django. No, no problem. I was just talking with a friend uh, who's Australian and in the film industry, and he was having a long-winded speech about how uh, Australian movies, you know, if, if, if an Australian person is cast in a movie in the United States, they're speaking with an American accent. Yeah. Um, if movies shot in Australia, they cast American actors... And just forget it, or or if someone wants to pay attention to an Australian film like um, Mad Max, they remake it with an all-American cast and say, "Oh, we're in Australia, but it's Tom Hardy instead of someone else." And so it's really cool for because this is this is what he was saying. His thesis was, well, "We need more movies about us," and more specifically, we are this this country belongs to the Aboriginal people. So it, 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 it I've just... got friends who are directing now. Um, it took a while, but um, they got into the film and television school, and there's a lot of them. Um, Darlene Johnson, one of my favorite people in the whole world, is an excellent filmmaker. She sampled my film for uh, a series that they did with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation called Red Fern Now, which is about the black community today. And... Um, then Charlie Perkins' wife, Rachel Perkins, um, daughter, Rachel Perkins, she's making films. They're making them. They're, they're, take, they're going all over the world with their films. And those are the indigenous people. So they're small films, they're not big ones. Otherwise, man, I've just been home for the last two years writing this book. Writing I haven't this been book. out. I have no idea what the world looks like, Django. Mm -hmm. I have no idea. So he's probably right. I have no way of knowing. Speaking of the book, we said it. the the title of it is From Slavery to Star Trek. So let's talk about the Star Trek aspect of it a little bit. Um, it You getting a job at Desilu, I understand, really has a lot to do with the Watts uprising. Yeah, yeah. 
watched, I was up in San Francisco. I was dropping acid at a love-in in Golden Gate Park. And we found out that Watts had started and the revolution was starting without me and I got back as fast as I could. What was it like to walk in the streets? It, it, it sounds terrifying to me. One of the things I loved about your book is the immediacy. The, 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 it, it was so personal. I, you know, you read the history and you read the accounts and even seeing films or something doesn't do it quite like reading that you were there on the streets talking to a woman oh. who was... You know, so yes. it it makes it, as Django was saying before, it takes it down to this personal level. What was that like? Was it terrifying? Was it invigorating? And, and by the way, Mom has been gushing about what, what she's read of yours. I've, oh. I think the way you put it was, uh, well, you were like, this is huge, by the way, that we're interviewing you. And I agree. And then, and then, and then she went on to say, when, 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 when you're writing that, uh, when when you're reading her writing, that you're there. You're yeah. There's something oh. about your perspective. I'm so pleased because that's it's been scaring me for a while. Anyhow, I oh, got the courage. I, think that's I got the courage scary. To, to put that it's out scary. there. Okay, but the, the next one's still coming, and the one that's out there now is mildish compared to. I want to talk about code switching in a oh, minute. Oh boy. But but let's talk about Star Trek before okay. you get too exhausted <laughs> and you kick us out of here. Yeah, I run out of energy. I understand. The, these well, things not are exciting. Andy, calm down. <laughs> yes, Django, did you have a question? <laughs> I did. Yeah, I, I like her question, but I understand if uh, if if you yeah even any of that stuff you might just want to write it do it you get your feedback and then you move on is that is that your your or, style or can as a creative? you say what it feels like to have been in Watts at that moment I had a ball when I got there there was a carnival atmosphere going on oh. it was like I, I I talk about ants until these ants have been biting me lately. Ants, you know how ants go and they up, they meet and they go on to the next one and then they meet somebody else and they keep going. They sort of like ants go and then the, to the, mm. that thing. It was like that. People were like exchanging information and, and comments and things, and people were cooperating. They were carrying sofas and refrigerators. They were working with each other. They were helping each other. It was great. Huh. So I I we were in New York during 9/11, and the. Oh the cooperation and the love and understanding and shared yes. angst and you know fear and sorrow really that that community feeling yes. is overwhelming yes. well, so i think it. i understand that was it and we're talking about a place an where agency there was, yeah there was no agency something I, was happening yes. i like that word yeah i like you use that word yeah there was no supermarkets in watts there were little shops with Unbelievable, high by the way. There were no supermarkets for a long time after. Next door to uh, Watts is Carson, not that far away. Mm -hmm. Carson, all new, uh, houses built and everything, with a caveat that said no black people were allowed to live there. Uh, 
Jess Unruh, I think it was Jess, I can't remember who was in opposite, but the, the, the state legislature had gotten rid of covenants in, L, in California, pretty much, I'm pretty sure, and they voted them back in. Right. So people were pissed off. Right. Uh, William Parker had come along as police chief, and there were a lot of of servicemen who demobbed in California. They weren't going back to Mississippi, Texas, Arkansas, North Carolina, South Carolina, and all those places. They got out of the Army, Air Force, Marine Corps in California and stayed. They went to work as police. Parker then changed the way people were rostered. No more black, white serving together. He segregated them. And then and the cops became an occupying army of in the black community. So when it blew, it blew. Yeah. And 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 the thing that blew it the the match was this young 21-year-old who yeah. stopped for DUI, but yeah. really it was this But his mom's car he said, can, can I just take my car home please because that's a 2 or 300 dollar towing charge. She's standing there. It's her car. Yeah. Can't she drive it home? For God's sake, oh, no. I didn't know that. Yeah. I've never read that. Well, that's, that was that's one of the things. And then somebody supposedly pushed her. Whatever happened, it blew. Hmm. And that woman that I saw in the shop, she had her arms full of clothes, little kids' clothes, little dresses and pants, and she was glowing. And when she looked at me and she said, my kids are going to go to school this year with all new clothes. And I knew what that meant. Because if you were well off enough, Easter meant you got all new clothes. Right. From underwear to the out, outerwear. And, and all new clothes was a very special occasion. And you were supposed to start school with all new clothes. And for once, she was going to be able to do that for her kids. And she was in such joy. Now, the housing situation, you had a really personal experience while you were working on Star Trek. One of the writers... Harlan. <laughs> Harlan, Allison. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about what happened here. Well, the great bird and Majel had a little love nest the, down the road. The, the great bird is what she called Jean Roddenberry because she worked for Jean Kuhn. Yeah. So to tell between the two... Roddenberry was the great bird. Yeah, so they, they got this little nooner spot down the road. Oh, they weren't married? No. Oh, I see, okay. And um, there was a sign that said they had another place for rent there, so I went in to check it out, and as soon as I walked in, I knew this was not going to work. He looked at me, and I knew this is the uh, excuses. Oh, no, uh, it, 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 we have some people already here that are singing. Oh, 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 no, children? No, so we can't have any children here. Uh, oh, oh, no, you work in the studio? Oh, that's bad. No, we can't have that. You know, it was one of those kind of things, mm -hmm. and then it got around to... Too oh, many excuses. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I went back, and Harlan was there. They were trying to keep him under control so he could write Sitting on the Edge of Forever. Wait, what? tell tell me a little bit about Harlan. What, what do you mean control? Well, Harlan, they needed the script. They needed that script desperately. And Harlan was, you know, Harlan Ellison, the writer. And they wanted him to turn it in. He wa They wanted a shooting script. And it wasn't happening, so they got him to come in and stay in the director's room down the hall. Was he was he high energy or just Harlan scattered? Harlan. <laughs> just Harlan didn't like 
terrible people. I wanted to say assholes because that's Harlan. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he didn't like them, and he was his own person. Mm. What he was not capable of doing at that time was Star Trek format. There were very few writers who could. Uh, the new writers were having enough tra trouble just writing television, but the science fiction writers, they were so used to creating their worlds, their mm. language, their, their cultures, and they couldn't because Star Trek already had one, and they had to go along with that. So it was really hard for so many people, and it was so hard for Gene because he had to rewrite people he knew and respected. Mm. And not only that, but the guild would require that he put the show what he'd done and they'd go to arbitration. And sometimes he would have to take credit that he didn't want and upset a writer that he liked. Now, how do you know he didn't want that? Did did you see those exchanges where oh, he was yes. like... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Really? Yes. Interesting. Yeah. No, he, he didn't want that. He hated it when they called, when, when the Writers Guild said, oh, no, this will have to go to arbitration. <sighs> okay, so yep. Harlan helps you out with this uh, situation. You get turned down. Yes, and he went it's... down there and, and was a male me. Mm -hmm. And they offered him the apartment right away. <sighs> and did he say anything to them? No, we just went back and started getting the paperwork together to force them to do it. And by the time we got all that done, it was rented. So we just hoped that maybe the next time, maybe they wouldn't. But you had advocates there at Star Trek. Yeah. I mean, just for Gene, uh, I, I was having to pay for private school for my kids so they could go to a decent school. And I didn't have money, and so I was looking for another job, and I got an offer from Bert Schneider and those guys they were doing, the monkeys. And I thought, I'm making that, that standard salary. I'm making that already. Why bother to go there? I'm happy where I am, but I sure could use some money. And Gene had said that was you know, above his pay grade about what my salary was. It was determined by other people. And when I told him that I'd been there and that they wanted me and that I was going to hang around instead, he came back a few days later and said, oh, you'll be working overtime from now on. I went, what? I got kids, Gene. I can't. He said, no, you don't have to work it, but you'll be paid it. <laughs> so he had got He found it. his way. He found a way. Plus, Andy, to have said, yeah, I worked on the monkeys. <laughs> I, I'm not dissing them, but it's just not the same thing as Star Trek. <laughs> Respectfully, if I may, just so that we're not talking shop the whole time, um, I, I was I, I haven't been able to get out of my mind um, a burning curiosity about uh, the acid trip that you were talking about. <laughs> Owsley made the, Augustus Owsley Stanley made uh, was a chemist UC Berkeley made the best acid ever. It was a square, white square, with a score across it. And on the other side, it had an O, and it was 250 micrograms. So you knew exactly how much, oops, you knew exactly how much you were taking. Oh. And it was the purest, best acid ever. And you were getting it from 
uh, chem, uh, from a from a professor, so you knew that it was. It was coming. He wasn't a professor, but he was a chemist. He was at the school. Yeah, yeah. And and it was coming around. I remember going to a concert, and Jimi Hendrix was there, and Janis Joplin, and all that. Oh, for God's sake! And they were throwing handfuls of this into the audience. <gasps> wow! And we we're just popping pills. I mean, I remember flying that plane home that night. Oh, wow. I must have because I was so at one with the plane. Wow. Wow. <laughs> or, or when we slept with the Hell's Angels in the park after, you know, overnight for the concert the next day. I, it was, it just made everything good. Gosh, I remember, I remember reading that, that the Hell's Angels for a short time were hired as security for, for different music events. Like, oh, they the were Rolling just, Stones. I felt so secure being there with them. They were just, they were nice. They were, they were protective. And they were nice. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Well, because they were on the they were on the clock. They were they were they were performing a, uh, a service in that in that instance. I guess right? so. But I, think. I just know I felt safe there. Yeah. Wow. I, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All of it. Yeah. You and did of course, it. the guys conned us into. Margaret Mead says that in Samoa. The girls believe in free love, and that is the natural way of things. So, come on, baby, give it up because it's true, it's new, it's real. That's what we got to supposed to do. <laughs> Did you ever have a bad trip no. on acid? No, no. never. Hmm. Did you ha Did you ever have a trip that changed your concept of yourself or life? I remember going to Mexico City. And in the car, I was nervous, and I said to my friend, give me your flask, I want to. And he said, oh, I've, I've, I've dissolved a, a couple of tabs of acid. I said, I don't care, give it to me. And I remember the lights and the oneness with the plane and everyone on the plane. I remember flying that plane to Mexico City. Mm. It was all positive affirmations all for positive. you. All positive. Yeah. Every single time. Every single time. I had just one bad trip in my life. Out of five times. Uh, yeah. Do you know about this, Mom? Do I, yes, yeah. I do. Okay. I'm oh, sorry. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, it's just, so, it, it needed to tell me something. Yes. You know, that's what it was, and I, I had a resistance to hearing what it needed to tell me. And so I was so internal, I shut myself into a tent mm -hmm. at a music festival, and uh, all, all, the, all my friends were outside like, hey, do you want some pizza or tacos? And I just said, no, I need to be alone right now. Mm -hmm. And I sat there for four hours, and I came out different i came out yeah. i came out with with uh with a syllabus for what i needed to learn over the next few years and did you follow that and i figured it out i got there but you followed it i did and yeah. you learned i learned yeah oh i'm so pleased yeah yeah going back to what we were talking about earlier the the question that we opened up with i i i used to my my thing would be uh four years ago i i used to think so much about my own vanity and and see myself from from the outside so much mm -hmm. and that was a moment where it all kind of came crashing down and i i had to go back to zero mm -hmm. i lost all ego mm -hmm. um and then i've slowly built up what was necessary to get by because you need a little i think you need a little ego in life okay you need you need a positive self-talk i think I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to that 20-year-old girl? If you could whisper into the girl you were at 21, would you tell her to do anything different? 
again, ask for what you want and don't be afraid of hearing no. Don't take it personally. Know that wherever you put your attention is what you focus on is what's going to determine your outcome. That's enough. That's a lot. That's enough. And in, in doing that, I mean, I'm really lucky that when I, I'm, I, that I didn't have more success in Hollywood. I'm so grateful I didn't. I had gotten used to limousines and, 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 and being flashy and, mm. and, and all that stuff. I'd really gotten used to it. And I think I would have been just an asshole. Mm. Which a is real all one. ego building. Yeah. That's, it's, a, it's a hard place to not let that happen. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have liked me very much at all. And I wouldn't have known that. I would have thought that was the way it was supposed to be. But you wanted to be an associate producer on Star Trek. Yes. And I wanted to be associate producer on the, 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 the Butch Jigger at Universal, because I knew, like, Bobby Justman, please. Bob wanted to be producer so bad. If anybody had any ideas towards that, he probably would have stabbed me if I had said something like that. But now, those were big ideas for a woman of color in those days. For women, period. There weren't any women doing it. No, no. But Melvin Van Peebles... Gave you some big ideas. Yes, Tell me about that. Tell me how he encouraged you. Well, Melvin was just sort of like not um, acceptable or presentable at all. But I absolutely adored him. He could. I saw when I first saw him, he was sitting out front of the Universal uh, commissary with a pair of boots on, unlaced, uh, some fatigues on. The undershirt on, no shirt, just the undershirt, smoking a cigar. And I thought, that's not proper attire. That's not a proper way to do. You, you, you know, you've got to, you're black. You have to represent. You have to be neatly groomed at all time. Uh, you, 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 you can't do that. And then I thought, oh my God, that's Melvin Van Peebles. And that was enough. So I plopped myself down next to Melvin and told him how much I liked Story of a Three Day Pass. And he said, what did you like? And we started talking film. Mm. I didn't understand him. He was so far ahead of me. But he, he believed in me, and he cared about me, and he wanted me to be okay. And I was still going through my stage of you know, not caring enough about myself. And when I saw that he didn't buy into the bullshit, he didn't buy into the, oh, the producers or giving you some money to, to develop a script. Oh, my God, you're going to develop a script. Melvin was, oh, crap. I'll, you know, get somebody to write it for me. Here, take it, because they're not going to make anything. They don't want me. They're just saying this. They're just putting on a show. And he was right. Mm-hmm. Mm. He was right. They wouldn't have. In fact, when he made Watermelon Man, which was fun for me because I, that meant the guy, the director and the lead were both guys I'd been dating. <laughs> And I ended up being sort of like the mediator with them at times because they were totally different personalities. But Melvin didn't shoot the ending of the film the way it was written. And he told him, oh, look, I'll just shoot it this way. I'll shoot both endings. 
And then when they were editing and they called him up and he had started his own production company, which he called Yeah, because it made answering the phone easy. <laughs> they said, uh, uh, Melvin, Mel, we, we can't find the, the, the ending where he wakes up and he's white again. Uh, and Melvin said, oh, lordy, lordy, lordy. I must done forgot to shoot that. <laughs> So he... He was a rebel. And he didn't think it should be a problem, you being a woman. He thought, no, no, no. just go. Yeah. And eventually you did have to go. You had to leave L.A. to be able to do the work that you wanted to do. When you come back here, is it filled with memories or is it right now for you? I'm lucky enough that I'm now the last... There have been times when I came back. Uh, the FBI was looking for me for a while, so I had to come back and sort all that out. And that was painful, but I got through that. Um, Can you talk about that? It, 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 you don't have to. It wasn't anything much. It was, it was just a ridiculous scam. I figured it out, so I didn't get trapped. Mm. So I didn't get indicted. Nothing bad happened to me. But I It was, was a trap? It, it was people who were giving money to minority people to make businesses, but they were just really scamming all the money back that they gave. And wanting these businesses to fail or something? I see. I see. I see. So, but I Uh. I, I figured it out and I was in Hong Kong, so that's when I hit the hit betrayal with the $10,000 cashier's check in my my shoe. Got it. Because I could. What a remarkable and, and fascinating um, <laughs> life. <laughs> and it's incredible. And, and you're, still, you're so joyful and exciting and warm to speak to. And it's cool that you do comedy as well. You're, 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 are you still doing stand-up? Or I haven't waiting? done anything for quite a while. Um, I mean, that's how I met Francis. We were, we were on stage together. Uh, I, I did it to save my life. I did it because I had to, do, I had to find a way to laugh or else I would have drowned in my sorrow. Boy, that's a big survival instinct. Yeah, and that then led to storytelling because then I didn't have to get a con- I didn't get have to get a laugh every 2 seconds. Mm-hmm. So it was much easier to do storytelling. And then my grandkids said, "Grandma, who do our people? Who do we come from?" "Grandma, who introduced you to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X?" And "Grandma, I've watched Star Trek, but I never saw you on it. What did you do there?" Mm-hmm. And that became a solo show. Mm. And then with the lockdown, it became a book. Wow. Yeah, you, you, you see all these uh, uh, passionate, creative people saying, oh, well, you know, if, if, if someone young comes up to them and says, oh, should I, should I do this thing or how do I, how do I get ahead? And then the, the, the answer is nine times out of ten. You have to need to do whatever it is. And that's very much the impression I get from you as a creative in a general sense, is that you do this because you, you need to. You make these movies, you write these books, you, you're on this journey because of, of, of some higher You nailed that power. one. You nailed that one, Jacob. Yeah. Can I tell you what it was? I was 10, and the film was called, um, I'll get it in a moment, the lead was a guy called James Edward, who was one of the most beautiful black men I'd ever seen. And he married a woman that lived down the street, Everdeen Wilson. 
uh, Red Fox married another girl down the street. We had great street in San Diego. He married a girl down the street, so he and I got to be friends later on as well. But it was called Home of the Brave, and it was about post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, a black man who couldn't walk because of, he had been uh, unable to help a fellow soldier who was being tortured, and he was he could hear them torturing him, but if he went to the aid, he would have wrecked the whole thing that they were there for. And it just broke him. And while he's breaking, one of the guys says to him, we only two, yet our howling can encircle the world's end. Frightened, you are my only friend, and frightened we are everyone. Someone must take a stand. Coward, take my coward's hand. And that howling was something I must have committed to then because that's what I tried to do. I tried to howl hmm. about injustice, unequal, unequal opportunities, and, and, and how badly people treated people with the knowledge that we can together. And that's what Star Trek gave me. I learned about mediation on Star Trek. I thought it meant that I had to be a lawyer to be a mediator, but I learned about it on Star Trek, and I wanted to be one of those peace parties, one of those groups that was, was bringing about peace on one of those planets. I wanted that, and that was the happiest. That's probably even more fun than being on stage, is, is, is mediating a dispute and having the people come together afterwards. Mm. Man, that is such, oh, it feels so good. You are a professional mediator. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I heard you say one of the most important things. It really kind of struck me uh, about the importance of Star Trek. What was the most important thing? It had all these messages. It had messages of hope and and diversity and a future that we could all look forward to. Yeah. But you said the most important thing about it was it was entertaining so people would watch it. Yeah. And get these messages. That's what I'm trying to do in my book. Please uh, tell me I'm getting there. Yeah, the book. I, I, it, you did. I'm because trying to educate you and it. entertain, man. That's right. I want to howl still. I got to howl still. Well, your vulnerability is in the book. Your, uh, your, your constant curiosity about life that you, you have right now, your curiosity and openness, and also your willing, you pulled out, you pulled out your phone and said, wait a minute, what were the things I wanted to change about myself here? <laughs> you, you, you don't stop. You do not stop evolving. And I, I can't think of anything uh, better. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. It's good. Thank you. Oh, I like you guys. <laughs> <laughs> we feel that way, too. Yeah, this has been awesome. Thank you so much.